Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the Architects of Art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. So, you've decided to go all retro and dive into vinyl. No more digital for you. You are going back to the future. It's all about analog, baby. Bye-bye, MP3s and digital downloads, except for maybe the songs that you want to load on your phone. But that's the one and only exception, other than the songs you want to play through your car's entertainment system. So we've got the the two exceptions and, and, and no more. Well, we kind of have to count the songs we want to send to friends. Uh, but those th- those three situations cover off everything, Ex- except for the digital tracks that you'll you'll stream. But other than those three, four specific needs, you're going to give up music encoded into zeros and ones. Binary is dead. No more pathetic sampling rates resulting in harsh sounding square waves. Not counting all the CDs you you already own, of course. Those are digital files. Um, but I mean, you're not going to throw them out, right? You're just going to probably rip them into your computer. But beyond those five situations, and just those five, you're done with digital. Mostly. Except when you can't avoid it. Which is, I guess, 90% of the time. But, But still, you want to experience what everybody has been telling you about vinyl. Not only the sound, but the whole experience of buying and unwrapping and playing it. If you're of a certain age or of a certain technology persuasion, getting back into vinyl is like riding a bike. The first time you try it again, you might be a bit wobbly, but you end up getting the hang of it again. But what if you've never ridden a bike? Well, gather around, friends. Let's get you started. This is your Ongoing History's Beginner's Guide to Vinyl. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. No, I got... Hemi Lee, two and Arlo, James Taylor, Jimmy Rogers, Hank Williams, and Mojo Nixon, Hendrix, Haggard, and a whole lot more. In that dusty old pile of vinyl records I got sitting on my floor. That sets things up nicely. That's Todd Snyder with Vinyl Records. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I want you to regard this show as a safe space if you are a vinyl newbie. 
There are no dumb questions here. You want to build an old-school record collection, and you want to know where to start, how to maintain it, and how to experience music in this fashion. I get a lot of email from people asking questions like, what kind of turntable should I buy? Uh, what sorts of records should I buy? And where should I buy them? But hold on, let's back up. Let's start at the very beginning. The idea of storing music as microscopic bumps in a spiral groove on a flat rotating platter goes all the way back to the late 19th century to a German inventor named Emil Berliner. While Thomas Edison figured out how to store sound in grooves, he used a cylinder coated with a hard wax, and his machine was called the phonograph. Berliner's disc was played on what he called a gramophone. Both of those words, phonograph and gramophone, were originally brand names, just like Kleenex or aspirin. Today, a phonograph, a gramophone, a turntable, and a record player, they all reference exactly the same thing. A round platter connected to a motor that spins at standard speeds. The grooves on the record are traced by a stylus connected to a cartridge, which is at the end of a tone arm. The tiny mechanical wobbles of the stylus are turned into electrical signals by the cartridge, which are sent up the tone arm to an amplifier, then to speakers, which turn those impulses into acoustic energy, and that turns it into sound. The word vinyl is short for polyvinyl chloride, which chemists tell us is a plastic polymer made from petroleum that was first used in the 1920s for the manufacture of sewer pipes. It's also used for everything from electrical cables to clothing to flooring. Vinyl is pretty tough. This material can be recycled up to seven times and has a lifespan of up to 140 years before it starts to degrade. But each round of recycling introduces impurities. So there was your first tip when buying vinyl. Try to look for records made with virgin vinyl. That's the term. We don't want impurities because they can result in less than stellar sonic qualities. Recycled vinyl was a big problem in the late 1970s and early 1980s. As a result of the oil crisis of the early 1970s, all petroleum products got more expensive. Labels and pressing plants not only began making records with recycled and recycled recycled vinyl, but with less of it. Records got thinner, which means the grooves weren't as deep. Shallow grooves can't store as much sonic information as deeper ones, especially bass. Thinner records were also easier to damage, so no wonder the world couldn't wait to ditch records for CDs in the early 80s. Now, it's, it's really weird because a record pressed in 1972 is often thicker, heavier, and of better physical quality than a record pressed 10 years later. That's something to remember if you're setting up a collection. So I'm starting up a boys club just like junior high For guys with record collections And the girls, they hurt to get them here are some terms that might come in handy when looking at a vinyl record. First, LP. That's short for long playing. The terms LP and album are interchangeable. They both refer to vinyl records, 12 inches in diameter, that store the music in what are called microgrooves. The continuous spiral groove on a 12-inch long playing album is about 500 meters or 1,600 feet long. That means in order to play both sides of a typical album, the stylus has to be dragged through the grooves for about a kilometer. This is why you want to spend your money on a good cartridge for your new turntable. An LP has several regions. The lip on the outer circumference is called the lead-in groove. That's where you drop the stylus and the record rotates until it catches the start of the spiral. 
music plays until it reaches the end of the spiral, at which point the stylus heads into an area known as dead wax, which is the empty bit between the grooves and the center label. The dead wax area sometimes contains written information that you can see. Maybe it's a catalog or matrix number. Or maybe it's a message from the artist. These are called runoff groove messages. Joy Division was quite fond of etching something into their dead wax, most of which are pretty puzzling messages. What, what did they mean by old blue and this is the way? I don't know. Some copies of The Clash's London Calling are inscribed with Tear Down the Walls. And the way you can tell if you have an authentic copy of the very first Nirvana single, issued on Sub Pop Records in October of 1988, is to look for a message handwritten in letters two millimeters high. This is in the dead wax. It reads SP-23-1. Why don't you trade those guitars for shovels? L-31540. For added protection, hold it up to the light and make sure you see the word K-disc faintly machine stamped on both sides. Let's continue talking about vinyl quality. You may have seen reissues listed as being pressed on 140 gram, 180 gram, 200 gram, or even 220 gram vinyl. What's all that about? Well, it has to do with the weight of the record, reflective of how much actual vinyl was used to make that disc. A typical record runs anywhere from 120 to 150 grams. Anything more than that is considered to be heavyweight vinyl. Now, there are vinyl freaks who believe that audio quality is not enhanced by heavier vinyl. But me? I think I hear a difference. But that's just me. What we can agree on is that heavier vinyl tends to warp less. And it's really important that a record sit nice and flat on a turntable. The flatter the record, the easier it is for the stylus to trace the grooves, meaning that the record will wear less. Remember, you're dragging a diamond across plastic. It's impossible to tell on the radio, but trust me when I say that this is from a 180-gram reissue of Pearl Jam's 10 album, released as part of a box set in 2009. It's also a remaster, which means the producers and engineers went back to the original master tapes and started creating this new recording from those raw materials using the latest technologies. My record sits super flat on my turn. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Table. And it sounds glorious in the home office. good from where I am. Pearl Jam and Evenflow, taken from a remastered version of 10 on 180 gram vinyl. When we come back, let's talk about turntables. We're calling this show a beginner's guide to vinyl. If you're an old hand at the format, you are excused. You can take this as read. But if you're looking to get into the format for the first time, I hope this is going to be of some help. I get lots of emails from people that go something like this. Hi, 
I want to start a vinyl collection, but I don't have a turntable. Is that a problem? Well, only if you don't plan to play any records that you acquire, which, by the way, is not that unusual. Stats from 2016 indicate that 48% of people who buy vinyl don't play it. 7% admit to not having a turntable. The pleasure for these people is in the collecting, not necessarily the listening, which, when you think about it, isn't really all that different from many other sorts of collecting, is it? How many people collect wine or rare whiskeys with no intentions of ever drinking it? Some people collect cars they don't drive. These items are just put on display to admire and impress. So collecting records you don't play? Fine. Whatever makes you happy. Another frequent email goes like this. What kind of turntable do you recommend for someone just getting into vinyl? The answer is, it depends on your commitment. Are you looking for a standalone unit with speakers and everything included? Or do you want a turntable that you hook up to something else? If it's the latter, are you going to hook it up to an amplifier or a computer? If it's a computer, you'll want a turntable with a USB output. That way, not only can you listen to your records through your computer, but you can also use it to rip vinyl to MP3, if that's your thing. However, USB turntables tend to be of lower quality. Not always, but sometimes. To get the most out of a vinyl collection, you should spend a couple of hundred bucks to get a machine that has a nice quiet motor, a tone arm that will track your record straight and true, and a chassis that doesn't transfer any noise to the tone arm. Manufacturers to investigate include Rega out of the UK, Audio-Technica from Japan, and Pioneer, which is also from Japan. The largest maker of turntables in the world is a Czech company called Sev Litovel. They make 150,000 turntables a year under a variety of names like Project that range from $200 to well over $10,000. Now, that sounds like a lot, but when you get into the upper end of turntable shopping, things get super crazy. The most expensive turntable that I've ever seen is the AV Design House Derenville VPM 2010-1. Yeah, really sexy name. It's insanely complicated. It weighs over 80 kilos, and the price starts at 650,000 US dollars. So, uh, not one of them then. If you were to take Beck's advice and have two turntables and a microphone and use two AV Design House Darrenville VPM 2010-1s, we'd be spending $1.3 million US. But we couldn't use those turntables for DJing because they have belt drive. Which brings us to another thing about turntables. What makes them go round? Well, there were two types of drive systems for turntables, belt drive and direct drive. With belt drive, the motor that spins the turntable platter is off to the side, sometimes even separate from the main turntable housing. It's connected to the platter with some kind of soft rubber belt. The thinking is that by having the motor separate from the platter, fewer vibrations will be transferred from the motor to the tone arm. Those vibrations can be heard as low-frequency rumbles, and you want as little of that as possible in your listening experience. A direct drive turntable is connected directly to the platter, right up through the spindle, which is that thing that goes through the hole in the record. This means the platter spins at exactly the same speed as the motor. There might be a little vibration transfer, but direct drive turntables now have plenty of sound insulation, so this isn't as big a problem as it once was. 
The advantage of a direct drive turntable is that it can spin with a lot of torque. Think of it as the 0 to 60 speed of a car. A direct drive turntable can get to spinning to, say, 33 and a third RPM in just a tiny fraction of one rotation. And this was really important for radio stations back in the days when we played records. You wanted that record to go from a dead stop to full speed instantly. Direct drive turntables are also the ones that DJs use, especially for scratching and beat mixing. If you tried any of that on a belt drive machine, you would fail. The gold standard for direct drive turntables, as far as I'm concerned, is the family of Technique's SL1200s. This is a very basic machine with a very powerful motor, a tough tone arm, and an easy-to-use pitch control. They were built to take all kinds of abuse, and they did. I've used dozens over my career in clubs, and they've all been fantastic. The SL1200 was first introduced in 1972 and was so popular that an example is on display at the London Science Museum as an example of a piece of technology that shaped our world. Hip-hop and rap could not have been invented if it were not for the SL1200 and the machines it inspired. But let's be very clear. As far as I'm concerned, and a lot of other people, the SL1200 was the best. It went from zero to full 33 and a third RPM in 0.7 seconds. It could withstand all kinds of shocks and bumps, and the motor ran forever. Techniques cranked them out by the thousands until 2010, when they decided that it was just too much trouble and the return on investment just wasn't worth it. But then the vinyl resurrection kept on going, and prices for used 1200s went through the roof. So Techniques decided to bring them back in 2016. That's great, but the bad news is that they are two to three more times more expensive than they used to be. If you ever need an endorsement of the SL1200, just ask Fatboy Slim and what decks he prefers to use when he DJs. Fatboy Slim, user of the Techniques SL1200 turntable. Let's get back to the business of buying a record player. The basic technologies of these things hasn't changed for over 100 years. The components have been upgraded, sure, but turntables work just the same as they always have. That means, if you're careful, you could look into buying a used one. Couple of things, though. Has the machine you want always been in the possession of the original owner? If so, that's good. Has it ever been used for DJing? Chances are that unless it's a Techniques SL1200, you'll want to run away if it has. Doesn't have all the essential parts. Let me give you a hint. There's a website called VinylEngine.com. It has a massive database of turntables with pictures and manuals and reviews and forums. And before you buy any turntable, new or used, you might want to check through that site before you part with any money. I was looking for a song to play about turntables, and I found this one. It's from Rancid's 1998 album, Life Won't Wait. In fact, it's called turntable has a resistance your assistance yo what's smoking dust oh. hey style no a trial it's a festival love and fate come on everybody let's get together high above the backdrop of hate rancid with turntable and we're not done yet coming up next on this beginner's guide to vinyl we'll touch on how we collect the stuff and what to look for when buying Back with a few more hints and tips for anybody who wants to get into the world of vinyl records. Now we're going to talk about collecting. First of all, there is no plural of vinyl. You can say you collect records, but never 
ever say that you collect vinyls. You never add S to the word ever. All right, now that that's out of the way, what should you collect? The answer is whatever you want. You got to start somewhere, right? And once you begin collecting, you'll find your niche. You'll figure out what you want to do. Maybe it's Japanese pressings. Maybe you'll specialize in seven-inch singles from punk bands. You could get ultra-specific and try to acquire as much material as possible from a certain artist. You may buy your records brand new right off the shelf, which is fine. Or you may want to start crate digging. That is, buying used records at shops, record shows, and from other collectors. If that ends up being your thing, the first thing you need to know is that the price of a used record depends entirely on the demand for it. It could be extremely rare, but if no one cares, it's not worth anything. Second, if there are many copies of that record out there, the price will reflect it. But if the marketplace has indicated a demand for a certain release, then it will find its price, which, like all commodities, will fluctuate over time. The price of any used record also depends on its physical condition, both in terms of the packaging and the vinyl itself. Now, obviously, you want to cover as close to new looking as possible. No markings, no water damage, nobody's name written on the cover, and all the inserts that may have come with it safely tucked inside. With the vinyl, you want to avoid scratches and scuffs, warping, and a misshapen, worn-out spindle hole. This is where we now get to the issue of grading. There is a well-established system for grading the condition of a used record, and it goes like this. The theoretical top-of-the-line grade is still sealed. That means you have a record that's still in the original shrink wrap. Now, normally this is great, but some sellers re-shrink wrap a record to make it look still sealed. It may even contain the wrong record, but assuming that everything is kosher and the person selling it to you is honest, a record like this is rated as mint. Never opened, never played, perfect condition. Now, this is just me, but I take the shrink wrap off all my records. I've heard that it can continue to shrink, warping the record inside. Other collectors say I'm crazy, but okay, whatever. The next grade is near mint. It's almost totally untouched with no signs of wear or abuse. Other than not being in the shrink wrap, it is totally pristine. After that, we have Very Good Plus. This record was loved and listened to. However, the owner was careful with it, meaning that there's very little in the way of visible wear. Expect to pay about mm, 50% less for a Very Good Plus record versus one in mint condition. That's a rule of thumb. Below that is Very Good. Again, this is a record that's obviously been used, but not to the point where it's useless. It's about 25% the value of the same record in mint condition. And then we get into conditions like good, good plus, fair, and poor. In cases like this, either negotiate really hard or walk away. It's just not worth it. Unless you're into the rarefied air of super rare 78s or test pressings. They may not be in good condition, but because they are so rare and so much in demand, they're worth money even if they're unplayable. Not that you'd want to play them at all because they're so delicate. I should also point out that negotiating is part of record collecting. Dealers will talk, usually, because they want to move merchandise. And if you buy in quantity, you have a better chance of cutting a good deal. But I'm, I'm going to warn you. If you get into record collecting, you could end up being sucked into a very, very deep rat hole where a hobby becomes an obsession, a very expensive obsession Still, it's probably better than doing crap.
Since we've gone down the record collecting road, what are the most collectible? That is the most expensive records out there. At the top of the charts as of mid-2017 is Once Upon a Time in Shaolin by Wu-Tang Clan. Only one copy was ever produced, and after some hype, it was sold at auction for $2 million US. The buyer turned out to be Martin Shkreli, the farmer bro who became very popular after he raised the price of an AIDS drug by 5,000%. Now, that's not vinyl. That's a CD. If we're talking just vinyl, we move to the retail version of the Beatles' White Album. Every single one of those records has a serial number with the first four records going to each of the Beatles. It was Ringo Starr who had number 0000001, and he sold it off for charity in 2015 for $790,000. Third place in our list of most expensive collectibles is one of those test pressings that I mentioned earlier. This acetate, which is another name for it, is My Happiness by Elvis Presley. This acetate was recorded for his mom as a birthday present, which led to his discovery by Sam Phillips. This is basically, if you want to look at it, the Ur record of rock and roll. Jack White bought the one and only copy in 2015 for $300,000. More Beatles come in fourth place. We have the Quarrymen, the pre-Beatles group, covering Buddy Holly's That'll Be the Day. Paul McCartney owns the one and only original copy, and its estimated value is in the vicinity of 250000 U.S. Oh, and by the way, McCartney reissued that recording in 1981 on both 10-inch 78s and 7-inch 45s in lots of 25 each. And if you can find one of those now, they are worth close to $20,000 each. Yeah. Beyond that, we have more Beatles, more Quarrymen, some Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, a Michael Jackson demonstration CD, more acetates from Pink Floyd, a withdrawn Bob Dylan album. As for the most valuable and collectible alternative record, the answer seems to be a Velvet Underground acetate made in secret after hours at Scepter Studios in New York City in April of 1966. It features material that would later surface on their debut record, but these recordings are different. It disappeared for years until one day a guy named Warren Hill, a record collector from Montreal, stumbled across it at a flea market in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York. How much for this, he said. 75 cents, came the answer. Hill tried to sell it on eBay, but got a job when somebody bid up the price to $155,000 and bailed. But he was much more successful in 2014 when a high-end dealer bought it for $25,200. Now, recordings of that acetate have been made available. It's crackly and rough, but consider the source. We're lucky to have anything at all. The Velvet Underground, the one-of-a-kind acetate that was bought for 75 cents and sold for 25 grand. Now that is a record collector score. That is a short introduction into the world of vinyl. If you're new to the format, I hope it was helpful. If you're getting back into it, maybe this was a bit of a refresher. And if you never left, even during the lean years, I hope I did the subject justice. Let's meet up online at my website. It's a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update it every single day. You'll also get a free newsletter if you sign up. Music news in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every day. I can also be found on Facebook, Twitter, at Alan Cross. 
Instagram, Google+. And finally, there's old-fashioned email, which I check obsessively. That's alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Cotex. And I have two of the hosts of Art Cotex with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first? And explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful, uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like architects. Do you sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now now you're just bragging. <laughs> <laughs> Corn, John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario that uh, went out to, you know, make art that broke out to the world. And now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done and, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter. Uh, 
on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what, what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And, and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what, what went into to make that product and, and that, that piece of art as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things. Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era watching videos by like, Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Architects with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.